Section 11 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. John Erickson, Part 1. 1803 to 1889, Navies of War and Commerce, by W. F. Durand, Ph.D. The exact combination of inspiration, heredity, and environment which serves to produce genius will perhaps ever be a problem beyond the skill of human intelligence. When the rare elements do combine, however, the result is always worthy of most careful study, both because great achievements furnish a healthy stimulus to emulation, and because some glimpse may be gained of nature's working in the formation of her rarest products. Few lives better illustrate these remarks than that of John Erickson, boredom of middle-class parentage and with no apparent source of heredity from which to draw the stores of genius which he displayed throughout his life, and with surroundings in boyhood but little calculated to awaken and inspire the life-work which later made him famous. From this beginning and with these early surroundings, John Erickson became unquestionably the greatest of the engineers of the age in which he lived and of the century which witnessed such mighty advances along all engineering lines. The imprint left by Erickson's life on the engineering practice of his age was deep and lasting, and if one may dare look into the future, the day is far removed when engineers will have passed beyond their dependence on his life and labors. It is perhaps not amiss that before looking more closely at the achievements of Erickson's life and activity, note should be taken of the large dependence of our present civilization and mode of life on the engineer and his work. In different ages of the world's history, each has received its name, appropriate or fanciful as the case may have been. For the modern age, no name is perhaps more adequately descriptive than the age of energy, the age in which our entire fabric of civilization rests upon the utilization of the energies of nature for the needs of humanity, and to an extent little appreciated by those who have not considered the matter from this point of view. If we consider the various elements which enter into our modern civilization, the items which enter into the daily life of the average man or woman, the items which we have come to consider as necessities and those which we may consider as luxuries, the items which go to make up our needs as expressed in terms of shelter, food, intercommunication between man and his fellow, and pleasure, the most casual consideration of such will serve to show distributed throughout almost the entire fabric of our civilization dependence at some point on the power of the steam engine, the water wheel or windmill, the subtle electric current, or the heat energy of coal, petroleum, oil, or natural gas. The harnessing and efficient utilization of these great natural energies is the direct function of the engineer, or more especially of the dynamic engineer, and in this noble guild of workers Erickson carved for himself an enduring place and left behind a record which should serve as an inspiration to all who are following the same pathway in later years. No one feature perhaps better differentiates our modern civilization from that of earlier times, 400 years ago, or even 100, than that of intercommunication between man and his fellow. Compare the opportunities for such intercommunication in the present with those in the times of Queen Elizabeth, Sir Isaac Newton, George Washington, or Napoleon I. We now have our steamships, steam and electric railroads, cable, telegraph, and telephone. A few years ago, not a single one was known. The modern age is one which demands the utmost in the possibility of communication between man and his kind, 
and in this respect the wide world is now smaller than the kind finds of an english county a century ago in this field as we shall see ericsson did some of his greatest work and left perhaps his most permanent record for the future ericsson's life falls most naturally into three periods chronologically or geographically and likewise into three periods professionally though the latter mode of subdivision has by no means the same boundaries as the former the first mode of subdivision gives us the life in sweden the life in england and the life in the united states the second mode gives us the life of struggle and obscurity the life of struggle achievement and recognition and the calmer and easier life of declining years with recognition reward and the assurance of a life's work well done john ericsson was born in the province of vermland sweden in 1803 his father was olaf ericsson a mine owner and inspector who was well educated after the standard of his times having graduated at the college in karlstad the principal town of the province his mother was britta sophia jungstrom a woman of flemish scotch descent and to whom ericsson seems to have owed many of his stronger characteristics three children were born caroline in eighteen hundred niles in eighteen o two and john in eighteen o three of john's earliest boyhood we have but slight record but there seems to have been a clear foreshadowing of his future genius he was considered the wonder of the neighborhood and busied himself day after day with the machinery of the mines drawing the form on paper with his rude tools or making models with bits of wood and cord and endeavoring thus to trace the mystery of its operation in eighteen eleven the ericsson family fell upon evil times due to a war with russia business became disturbed and in the end olaf ericsson became financially ruined this brought the little family face to face with the realities of life and we soon after find the father occupying a position as inspector on the gotha canal a project which was just then occupying serious attention after having been neglected for nearly one hundred years and nearly three hundred years after it was first proposed in fifteen twenty six through this connection in eighteen fifteen john and niles ericsson were appointed as cadets in a corps of mechanical engineers to be employed in carrying out the government's plans with reference to the canal during the winter of eighteen sixteen and seventeen and at the age of thirteen john ericsson received regular instruction from some of his officers in algebra chemistry field drawing and geometry and the english language ericsson's education previous to this seems to have consisted chiefly in lessons at home or from tutors after the manner of the time he had thus received instruction in the ordinary branches and in drawing and some chemistry his training in drawing seems to have been unusually thorough and comprehensive and with a natural genius for such work his later remarkable skill at the drawing board is doubtless in no small measure due to the excellent instruction which he received in his early years his progress in his duties as a young engineer was rapid and he was soon given employment in connection with the canal work involving much responsibility and calling for experience and skill at length on reaching the age of seventeen he became stirred with military ambition and dissatisfied with his present prospects he left his position with its opportunities for the future and entered the swedish army as an ensign of a regiment of field chasseurs this regiment was famous for its rifle practice and ericsson was soon one of its most expert marksmen the routine of army life was however far from being sufficient to satisfy the uneasy genius of john ericsson and we soon find him engaged in topographical surveying for the government and so rapid and industrious in his work that as the surveyors were paid in accordance with the amount accomplished he was carried on the payrolls as two men and paid as such in order that the amount which he received might not seem too excessive for one individual 
Even this was not sufficient to exhaust his energy, and about this time he conceived the idea of publishing a book of plates descriptive of the machinery commonly employed in the mining operations of his day. To this end he collected a large number of sketches which he had prepared in his earlier years, and made arrangements to take up the work of preparation for publication. The drawings selected were to be engraved for the book, and nothing daunted by the undertaking, Erickson proposed to do this work himself. After some discouragement, the engraving was undertaken in 18 copper plates of the 65 selected, averaging in size 15 by 20 inches, were completed within a year. In various ways, the project met with delays, and it soon became apparent that the rapid advance in the applications of machinery to mining would render the work out of date, and it was at length abandoned. At about this time, Erickson seems to have taken up seriously his work on his so-called flame engine, certain experiments made by his father having suggested to him the hope that a source of power might in this way be developed which would be more economical than the steam engine. At this point, we see entering into Erickson's life an idea which never left him, which controlled much of his work in midlife, and which attracted no small part of his attention throughout his closing years. The idea was the discovery of some form of heat engine which should be more economical than the steam engine, especially as it was in his day. The flame engine idea grew rapidly and soon absorbed his chief attention. Military life now lost its attraction, and in 1826, obtaining leave of absence, he left his native land and turned his face toward London doubtless with the hope strong within him that a substitute for the steam engine had been found and that his future lay secure and easy before him. The characteristic features of Erickson's life up to this time, when he had reached his 23rd year, are energy, industry, independence, all in most pronounced degree and combined with a most astonishing insight into mechanical and scientific questions. It was not a period of achievement, but one of formation and of development in those qualities which were soon to make him famous in both worlds. Of his work during this period of life, little or nothing outside the idea embodied in the flame engine can be said to belong to the permanent record of his life's achievement. This appeared in the caloric engine, and still later in the well-known Ericsson air engine of the present day. This era was one of development and promise, and richly were the promises fulfilled in the achievements of his later years. A careful study of his life to this point is sufficient to show that with health and time, such a nature would certainly leave a mark wide and deep on the world in which it was placed. His characteristics were such that achievement was the very essence of life, and with the promise and potency as revealed in this first 23 years of his life, we may be well prepared for the brilliant record of the remaining 63. With Erickson's arrival in London began the second important period of his life. His first efforts were directed toward the introduction of the flame engine, but he soon found unexpected difficulties in the use of coal as fuel instead of wood, and it became clear that in order to live he must turn his attention to other matters for a time. Then followed a series of remarkable pieces of work in which Erickson's genius showed itself, either in original invention or the adaptation and improvement of the existing facts and material of engineering practice. While thus occupied, his leave from his regiment expired, and he seems to have overlooked taking proper steps to have it renewed. He was thus placed technically in the attitude of a deserter. Through the intervention of a friend, however, he was soon afterward restored and promoted to the rank of captain in the Swedish army. This commission he immediately resigned, and thus his record became technically cleared of all reproach. To give a mere list of the work with which Erickson was occupied during the years from 1827 to 1839, when he removed to the United States, would be no small task, 
and reference to the more important only can be here made compressed air for transmitting power forced draft for boilers by means of centrifugal blowers steam boilers of new and improved types the surface condenser for marine engines the location of the engines of a ship for war purposes below the waterline the steam fire engine the design and construction of the novelty a locomotive for the rainhill contest in eighteen twenty nine when stevenson's rocket was awarded the prize though ericsson heavily handicapped in time and by lack of a track on which to adjust and perfect the novelty achieved a result apparently in many ways superior to stevenson's with the rocket various designs for rotary engines an apparatus for making salt from brine further experimental work with various forms of heat or so-called caloric engines and the final development in eighteen thirty three of a type from which great results were for a time expected superheated steam and engines for its use a deep-sea sounding apparatus embodying the same principle as that later developed by lord kelvin in the well-known apparatus of the present day a machine for cutting files automatically various types of steam engines and finally his work in connection with the introduction of the screw propeller as a means of propulsion for steam vessels these are some of the important lines of work on which ericsson was engaged during the twelve years of his life in london in connection with some he was undoubtedly a pioneer and deserves credit as an original inventor in connection with others his work was that of improvement or adaptation but in all his influence was profound and the legacy which we have received from this period of engineering progress is due in no small degree to ericsson and to his work in london during these years at a later point we shall refer in some further detail to these questions but desire for the moment rather to gain a broad and comprehensive view of his life as a whole ericsson has been by some called a spendthrift in invention and the term is not without some justice in its application his genius was uneasy and his mind was oppressed by the wealth of his ideas it was this very wealth which led him from one idea to another without always taking sufficient time in which to develop and perfect his plans rich in invention he cared but little for exploitation and when the truth of his predictions was demonstrated or the ground of his expectation justified he was eager for new achievements and new combinations of the materials of engineering progress in this spirit of struggle and unrest he passed the years in london rapidly becoming known for his versatility in invention and for his daring and originality in the details of his engineering work from eighteen thirty three to eighteen thirty nine or during the second half of his term of residence in london he became in increasing measure absorbed in his work connected with the screw propeller as a means of marine propulsion ericsson's name in the popular mind has been most commonly associated with the monitor and her fight with the merrimac in the civil war and next probably with the screw propeller as a means of marine propulsion it will therefore be proper at the present point to refer in some further detail to the circumstances connected with his relation to the introduction of the screw propeller regarding this question an entire volume might be written without doing more than justice to the subject but only a brief statement of the chief facts can be here attempted as early as the seventeenth century the possibility of developing a propulsive thrust by the use of a submerged helicoidal or screw propeller had been vaguely recognized and during the following or eighteenth century the same idea had been brought forward it had been viewed in this connection however merely as a curiosity and led to no immediate results later in eighteen o four francis b stevens of new jersey in an experimental boat on the hudson operated twin screws and demonstrated their applicability to the requirements of marine practice 
These propellers, in fact, had a form far more nearly approaching the modern screw propeller than did those which came somewhat later, and which marked the real entry of the screw propeller into actual and practical service. Again in 1812, Russell, a student in the University of Vienna, began to study the screw propeller, and his first drawing dates from this time. In 1826, he carried on experiments in a barge driven by hand, and in 1827, an Austrian patent was granted him. Two years later, he applied his screw to a boat with an engine of six horsepower and a speed of six miles per hour was said to have been attained. Then came a bursting steam pipe, and the police put a stop to the experiments, which seemed to have had no further results. Likewise, in 1823, Captain Delisle of the French engineers presented a memorial to his government in which he urged the use of the submerged propeller for the propulsion of steam vessels. No especial attention was given to this suggestion, however, and it was apparently forgotten until later, when the propeller had become a demonstrated success. Then this memorial was remembered, and its author brought forward to receive his share of credit in connection with the adaptation of the propeller to marine propulsion. These various attempts to introduce the screw propeller seem curiously enough to have had no lasting result. They were not followed up, and in the meantime had to some extent passed out of memory or, if remembered, the absence of result can hardly have acted as an incentive to fresh effort. At the same time, it must be admitted that the screw propeller as a possibility for marine propulsion was known in a vague way to the engineering practice of the day, and it is at this time, of course, quite impossible to say how much may have been known by Erickson, Smith, or others concerned in later developments, or to what extent they may have been dependent for suggestion on what had preceded them. The question of who invented the screw propeller in the absolute sense is entirely futile and without answer. No one could ever have reasonably advanced any such unique claim. At the best, it is simply a question of the relative influence in the introduction, improvement, and practical application of what was the common property of the engineering practice of the day. In 1833, or at the period now under consideration, however, the paddle wheel was the recognized instrument of marine propulsion. Since the beginning of the century, it had been growing in use with the gradual growth in the application of steam, and at this time it held the field alone. Some years earlier, it appears that some of the objections to the paddle wheel had become plainly apparent to Erickson. Although occupied with other matters, as he was, there was no immediate result. He apparently recognized that the slow revolutions possible with the paddle wheel did not favor the improvement of the steam engine along the lines which have since been followed, and he saw clearly that for warship purposes the engines employed— exposed above the waterline to destruction from the shell of an enemy, were entirely out of the question. Finally, in 1833 and 1834, we find him employed by a carrying company in London to conduct numerous trials with submerged propellers in the London and Birmingham Canal. In an affidavit made in March 1845, he states that in 1833, his attention was particularly called to the subject of oblique propulsion, and that under his direction, propellers of various patterns and embodying these principles were fitted on a canal boat named the Francis, and later in 1834 to another called the Anatorius. Shortly after this, or in 1835, his ideas took more definite form, and he refers to his work in a letter to his friend John Bourne in the following terms. 1835. Designed a rotary propeller to be actuated by steam power consisting of a series of segments of a screw attached to a thin broad hoop supported by arms so twisted as also to form part of a screw. The propeller subsequently applied to the steamship Princeton was identical with my said design of 1835. 
even the mode adopted to determine by geometrical construction the twist of the blades and the arms of the princetons and other propellers was identical with my design of the year last mentioned at about this same time or in eighteen thirty five the attention of mr f p smith seems to have been drawn to the subject of the screw propeller and we find him taking out a patent for his form consisting of an elongated helix or spiral of several turns under the date of may thirty first eighteen thirty one Ericsson's patent followed some six weeks later, or on July 13, 1836. While it thus appears that Ericsson had been studying the problem since 1833 or earlier, according to his own statements, there is no evidence that Smith's attention was drawn to the matter earlier than 1835. Delay on Ericsson's part in the matter of patent gives the earlier date to Smith. The mere date of a patent, however, is of small moment for our present purposes. It must be admitted that the modern form of screw propeller is quite unlike either of these original forms, although they all involve, of course, the same fundamental principles. Ericsson's propeller may properly be called an engineering success built on sound principles, but improved and largely modified by the results of later experience and research. Smith's propeller, while capable of propelling a boat, was the design of an amateur rather than of an engineer and in comparison with Ericsson's, seems to show a somewhat less accurate appreciation of the underlying principles upon which the propeller operates. In the present case, as we have noted above, the question is not so much one of invention as of influence in introduction, adaptation, and improvement. The screw propeller was already known, but had not been introduced into and made a part of actual engineering practice. Services in this direction are all that can be claimed for any of those concerned with the question during the third decade of the 19th century. From this point of view, we must give to Ericsson large credit. He had the courage of his convictions and did not allow his work in this direction to lapse for lack of effort on his part to secure its introduction into the practice of the day. Thus, in 1837, the Francis B. Ogden was built for the special purpose of testing the power of the screw propeller, and was operated on the Thames for the benefit of the British Admiralty and many others. Shortly after this, and largely through the influence of Captain Robert F. Stockton of the American Navy and Francis B. Ogden, the American consul at Liverpool, Ericsson began to consider a visit to the United States for the purpose of building, under Stockton's auspices, a vessel for the United States Navy. While these negotiations were underway, in 1838 he built for Captain Stockton a screw steamer named the Robert F. Stockton, the trials of which attracted much attention from the public at large and from the engineers of the time. At about the same period, Ericsson's propeller was fitted to a canal boat called the Novelty, plying between Manchester and London. This was presumably the first instance of a screw propeller employed on a vessel actually used for commercial purposes. Finally, in pursuance of Ericsson's plans with Captain Stockton, he left England November 1, 1839, and started for New York in the steamer Great Western, where he arrived November 23rd after a long and stormy passage. We now reach the final scene of Ericsson's life and professional activities. His visit was at first intended only as temporary, and he seems to have anticipated an early return after carrying out his plans with reference to a ship for the United States Navy. To quote a letter to his friend, Mr. John O. Sargent, he says, I visited this country at Mr. Ogden's most earnest solicitations to introduce my propeller on the canals and inland waters of the United States. I had at the same time strong reasons for supposing that Stockton would be able to start the big frigate for which I had prepared such laborious plans in England. 
The event was otherwise determined, however, and during the remaining fifty years of his life, he lived and wrought in the New World and as a citizen of his adopted country. If the record of his twelve years of work in London was long, that for the remaining and maturer years of his life may well be imagined as vastly greater. During the earlier part of this period, or until the Civil War, when all his energies were concentrated upon his work in connection with the monitor type of warship, we find the same wealth of invention in human energy, but for the most part directed along lines related to marine and naval construction. It was a period of training for the fuller fruitage of his genius during the Civil War. Shortly after his arrival, or in 1840, a prize was offered by the Mechanics Institute of New York for the best plan of a steam fire engine. With his previous experience in London, Erickson easily carried off the palm and was awarded the prize. He further occupied himself with the introduction of propellers on boats engaged in the inland navigation of the United States, with the design and construction of the United States steam frigate Princeton, with the development of the compound principle in the steam engine. Then in 1851, with his hot airship Erickson, or ship propelled by hot air or caloric engines as they were then termed, and later with caloric engines in smaller sizes for stationary purposes, of which several thousand were sold during the next succeeding years. End of section 11.